Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Hatton. Welcome back to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we spoke about David's flight from before Shaul's wrath, aided and abetted by none other than Jonathan, Yonatan, Shaul's own son, who makes a pledge and an oath with David that should the day come or when the day comes that David will be king, David will remember and will be merciful towards the descendants of Yonatan and not wipe them out. David parts from Yonatan in tears. It is truly a story of a deep and profound friendship. As the text describes it, Nefesh Yonatan Nikshirab, Nefesh David. Jonathan's soul was bound up or tied with that of David. And last time I suggested that this is one of the great friendship stories in the Tanakh because it gives us the essential, fundamental idea of what friendship is all about. It is about putting the interests of your friend or your fellow above your own in a true and sincere act of altruism. And that is precisely what Yonatan does. And David safely flees from Shaul, never to return to the court. From that point onwards, a fugitive forced to escape from place to place from location to location, always managing just to stay one step ahead of Shaul and his men. David now comes to Nov, to Achimelech the priest. Nov is, of course, later described as Ir HaKohanim, the city of the priests. And we discover quite shortly that in Nov, has the, the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, has been reconstituted. Remember that at the beginning of the book, in chapter 4, the war against the Philistines, Shiloh was destroyed and the ark was taken captive. Although the ark was later restored, Shiloh was not rebuilt, and the house of God had migrated to the city of Nov, even though the text never reported that explicitly, and we only learn it from the fact that when Nov is described in our chapter, it is clearly the religious center. It is there that the furniture of the Mishkan has been placed, including the table of the showbread. It is there that the priests minister before God. Now, of course, this is uh, a large lacuna, but we have to keep in mind that the Tanakh never aims to give us a comprehensive and total reading of the entire historical situation. The Tanakh will only tell us those details which are relevant and critical, either for indicating the personality and character of the individual, or the moral dilemma at hand, or the encounter before God that is the foundation of the Tanakh stories. David now comes to Nov. Achimelech the priest is, to, is surprised that David is alone. After all, up until now, 
the average Israelite thinks that David is still an important officer in the army of Shaul. Shaul's son-in-law married to Michal, Shaul's daughter. How is it that David arrives all alone without a retinue, without troops, without anyone accompanying him? And now David provides a ruse and he says, the king commanded me to undertake a mission, a secret mission, and I am not permitted to divulge anything about it. As for the men that you are wondering about, they are located in such and such a place. Now David makes his request. Do you have any food? Do you have five loaves? Give me whatever you have, please. Achimelech says, I only have consecrated loaves available. And the commentaries debate exactly what that means. Perhaps it means none other than the loaves associated with the table of the showbread, which are meant only be, to be consumed by the priests. Perhaps it means other loaves associated with the sacrifices. But the point is, Achimelech says, these are loaves that typically are not given to non-priests to consume. But David insists, and after assuring Achimelech that in fact, he and the supposed men that he is leading are in a state of holiness, Achimelech reluctantly gives him loaves so that David has provisions. David says in verse number nine, Perhaps you have a spear or a sword available. I had no time to take any of my weapons or my vessels because the king's mission was very urgent. Achimelech answers, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, which you struck down in the valley of Elah, it is wrapped up in the garment behind the ephod. Take it if you will. There is no other besides it. And David takes the sword of Goliath, and on that day, he flees from Shaul and continues his journey. Let's pause here for a moment. Obviously, this episode is included to indicate David's desperate state. He is all alone. He has no allies, at least no obvious ones at this point. He does not want to risk the safety of Achimelech or the priests of Nov. And yet he needs provisions. He needs a weapon if he is to have a fighting chance at escaping Shaul. And so, first and foremost, this episode highlights the desperation of the moment and then its impulsiveness as well. The next thing David does is to flee to Achish, the king of Gat, none other than, than, than Goliath, the Philistines' hometown. Gat is located in a more southerly direction, towards the coast, in the border between the tribal territory of Yehuda and the Philistines. And David flees to Achish, surmising that since the Philistines are the sworn enemy of Shaul, that is where he will find safety from Shaul. But as soon as he arrives, he realizes just how foolish 
The decision was, he is immediately recognized. The servants of Achish say to him, this is David, the king of the land. Significantly, they refer to David as Melech Haaretz, as if the writing is on the wall. Not only does Yonatan know that David will be king, but the Philistines know it as well. This is the very one, they say, concerning whom the women sang, Shaul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, of course, in those days, There was no such thing as the poster in the post office of the most wanted men. And so if you had not had direct interaction with David, you would not necessarily recognize him. So now David puts on a disguise, as it were, and conducts himself like a madman. The text reports, he acted foolishly. He scribbled on the gates. He caused the spittle to go down upon his beard. He looked imbalanced. And Achish said, this is not David. This can't be David. This is a madman, and I have enough of those around, in a comical aside. And through that, David was able to escape. So not only do we see desperateness in David's escape to Noth and his securing of bread and a sword, basic necessities in order to continue the journey. But in fleeing to, in, to Achish, an impulsive and desperate act, David reveals just how difficult his situation is. His life is in danger from Shaul to such a degree that he feels he has a better chance with Achish, the foe, until he suddenly and lately realizes his terrible error. It is a stroke of divine intervention that David escapes the clutches of the Philistines, and David will commemorate it in chapter 34 of the book of Psalms of Sefer Tehillim, where he describes how God looks over and watches over those that trust in him, even when danger stares them in the face. By the way, this indicates, and this is something that we will see on a regular basis as we make our way through these chapters, there is often a direct correspondence between the events reported in our text here and David's understanding those events in the book of Psalms in Sefer Tehillim. Bear in mind that in Sefer Shmuel, in our version of the story, David is a character among characters, even though he might be the main one at this point, but he is described in third person. We rarely get a window, an insight into the state of his spirit, into what he's thinking, a window into his mind. That's the perspective which is offered by Sefer Tehillim, which is often a first-person description of David sharing with us his emotional life, including at these highly charged moments. And from chapter 34 of Sefer Tehillim, it is quite clear that David felt that his life was in danger, and if not for the grace of God, he would have perished. 
There is, of course, one small detail that deserves to be mentioned before I move on to the next chapter. And that is that even as David was at Nov asking assistance from Achimelech, the priest, one of Shaul's trusted officers was there as well. And his name was Doeg Ha'adomi, as reported in chapter 21, verse number 8, Habir Haroim, the chief of Shaul's officers, the shepherds that were Shaul's, which is another way of saying there is someone present who watches as Achimelech assists David, and that, of course, is going to become critical in chapter 22. It's only reported in chapter 21 to offer us a foreshadow a detail that will be critical later in the story, which is that now Shaul's wrath will be directed towards the priests of Nov. In the meantime, chapter 22 begins with David in flight once again, this time to the caves of Adulam, and David's family, his brethren, his entire clan meets him there, presumably because their lives are now in danger as well. And verse 2 of chapter 22 reports that there gather around David an entire band of individuals, people who were in desperate states, and people that owed money that had creditors breathing down their necks, and all those whose soul was bitter, and David became their leader, they numbered 400 men. And this is actually a brilliant detail, because it gives us a window into ancient Israelite society. If a person was in financial trouble, or a person was under pressure, or a person was threatened and had no one to assist them, there was only one choice, to flee to the wilderness, which is what these men have done. And now we can begin to appreciate why it is so important that David the future king of Israel must live the life of a fugitive for an extended period until he will become king. It is for this precise reason. This will be the most important classroom in David's life because he will now have an insight into what it means to be oppressed and to be vulnerable. And when he becomes king, he will be able to assist those that are most acutely in need. So those that gather around David are desperate men. They're not criminals, by the way. There's a similar kind of story reported of Yiftach in the book of Judges chapter 9, but those men who gather around Yiftach are referred to as Anashim Pochazim, which means impulsive men, criminal men, brigands. And Yiftach is a brigand as well. That's not the case with David. These are desperate men. These are social outcasts. These are people that owe money. And back in the day, there's no such thing as declaring bankruptcy and starting fresh. If you owed money, then you would be taken as a slave or your children would be taken from you as slaves. 
Those are the ones that now flee to the wilderness and gather around this charismatic fugitive, David, the future king of Israel. So David's family has gathered. They are threatened by Shaul. And 400 men have gathered, outcasts from Israelite society. And from there, David travels to Mitzpah Moab, the outlook of Moab, and he appeals to the Moabite king and asks that the king shelter his family, his father, his mother. And the king of Moab does so. Is this because the king of Moab is the sworn enemy of Shaul? Shaul, after all, was reported to be fighting the Moabites in chapter 14. Is this because David's ancestress, Root, is none other than from the Moabites? Whatever the case may be, David's family will find shelter with the king of Moab, the enemy of the Israelites. And this is how the story goes. The rabbis debate what their final fate will be. We'll leave that aside for now. God the prophet now turns to David and advises him to flee once again, which he does, this time to the land of Yehuda, which is, of course, his own tribe. This is the first mention of God the prophet. Up until now, we have only heard about Shemuel and Shemuel's exploits, but Shemuel is an old man. Shemuel has receded from the story. God is now the prophet that fills that vacuum. Shaul heard that David had been seen and that he had been surrounded by helpers and men who supported him. And there he was in Giv'ah. He turns to his officers, his servants, and he says, listen here, Benjaminites, do you think that the son of Yishai, again, this is a a uh, disdainful way to refer to David. Do you think that he'll give you fields and vineyards? That he will make you captains of thousands and captains of the hundreds? You have all been treacherous. You have all gone against me. All of you. My own son made a covenant, an agreement with the son of Yishai, and no one told me. How could you not tell me? that in fact my own son and David are in league to install him as king. The text reports, by the way, even as Shaul gives this speech, his spear was in his hand, and we've already talked about the fact that at this point in the story, Shaul is a paranoid king, under threat, feeling defenseless, and therefore never far from his spear. Now Doeg the Edomite speaks up and reports, I saw the son of Yishai come to Nov to Achimelech, the son of Achituv. He inquired of God on his behalf. He gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Doeg now informs upon Achimelech. Is his report true? It is the case that Achimelech gave provisions and a sword of Goliath to David. But did Achimelech inquire of God on David's behalf? To inquire of God would mean to ask God whether the mission would be successful. 
in this particular moment, it would mean that David would be able to escape from Shaul if he had that critical information. So clearly, Doeg reporting that Achimelech had inquired of God on David's behalf would be the ultimate act of treachery if it were true. But chapter 21 never reported that detail. The king now sends for Achimelech, the priest, and his entire clan, the priests of Nov, and they report to the king. Shaul says to them, listen here, son of Achituv. Again, a disdainful way to refer to the priest of God. Here I am, master, says Achimelech. Shaul now accuses Achimelech and the priests of treachery. Why were you treacherous? How did you betray me on behalf of Ben Yishai? You gave him bread and a sword. You inquired of God on his behalf so that he might be my ambush on this day. Achimelech responds, There is no one among your servants who is as dependable and trustworthy as, as David, the king's own son-in-law, the one who follows the king's orders, the most honored member of your household. Another way of saying, Achimelech has no idea that Shaul is determined to kill David. Achimelech voices what most Israelites must have believed up until this moment. David truly is the most loyal and the most gifted and talented of Shaul's officers. How could I possibly have inquired on his behalf to God, thinking that it was a betrayal? Khalil Ali, God forbid. Your servant knows nothing of this, neither something small nor something great. Achimelech effectively denies any responsibility. With sincerity, what could he possibly have known in assisting David? David had given an excellent alibi. I'm on a secret mission. That's why I need your help. And that's why Achimelech helped. Achimelech says, I had no intention of betraying the king. But Shaul's response, the king's response, is absolutely brutal. Motamut Achimelech, Achimelech, you will die along with your entire father's house. All of you will be put to death for treachery. We're going to stop here for now because there's more to discuss in this episode. And we will continue and wrap up the story of the priests of Nov next time before we move on to David's next adventure. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Quorum Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.